it's like all of the pressures of everything happening build up inside you. And if you don't write it down or put it somewhere, it's just, you just like, I couldn't even handle it. I had no other Mm. coping mechanisms left. And I came to poetry when I was younger as a coping mechanism. And I think I still do sometimes. And, you know, some poets like to pretend that it's a totally intellectual practice and that there's no therapeutic benefit for them. But for me, it did start out as a therapeutic practice. And I think I still turn to it in that way. And, And maybe in some ways, the pandemic helped me to access that primal relationship I have with poetry, where I went back to the original reason why I go to poems. It's because Mm -hmm. I did need a place where I could tell the truth. I did need a place where I could process the most impossible things. I'm your host, Caitlin Salamini, and this is the Postpartum Production Podcast. Here, we hold conversations about the intersection of caregiving, creative practice, and capitalist production, as well as what it means to be producing art while also being a parent in modern society. Find out more at www.postpartumproduction.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Today on the Postpartum Production Podcast, we're speaking with Eugenia Lee. Eugenia is a Korean-American poet and the author of two poetry collections, Bianca from Four Way Books in 2023, so this year, and Blood, Sparrows, and Sparrows from Four Way Books in 2014. Poems from Bianca received Poetry Magazine's Best Hokan Prize and have appeared in numerous publications, including The Atlantic, The Nation, Plowshares, and The Best of the Net Anthology. Her essays have appeared in Time, The Rumpus, and elsewhere. Eugenia received her MFA from Sarah Lawrence College and serves as a poetry editor at the Adroit Journal and as the Valentine's editor at Honey Literary. It was really nice to finally connect. I know we've rescheduled at least once, maybe twice. (laughs) I can't remember. It was probably one of my kids was sick, but I'm really happy that we've finally been able to sit together and we're both healthy. I'm really excited to learn more about really about your whole arc to where you are today and also where you're sitting in this moment. And I know that your book's now actually been out a little bit because we got a little delayed in talking. So also curious to hear how that's going and what it's like having this work specifically out in the world and with readers and a community. Let's start with where you are today, both literally, but also just where you're landing in your body, in your psyche, you know, how you're feeling today. Hmm. That requires me to be present to my body, which I'm having some trouble doing lately. Hmm. So the book Bianca came out on March 15th. So it's been about Hmm. two and a half months now. Hmm. And I had planned sort of a whirlwind. Well, I call it a book tour. It looks like a book tour on social media, but it's just, Hmm. you know, whenever my husband has an early day, I booked an event and I drive to the event Hmm. or do readings here and there. And I, I did travel to a few places. But with my first book, which was out nine years ago, I didn't plan anything, or I would just hop onto things that my friends had planned. And I think I had a lot of regrets about how I handled that book launch. And 
had wished that I had done more. And so for Bianca, I think I overdid it because I also didn't account for having to figure out childcare or figure out how to be a mom and a wife at the same time that I'm doing this and being a poet. And the last of the events that I planned was this past Friday. And now I have a smattering in June and July and in the fall, but the bulk of it is done where it was kind of like back-to-back events and just nonstop, especially after, so it was Friday and then the holiday weekend because Mm -hmm. we're talking on the Wednesday after Memorial Day. I am just exhausted. Like, I'm not going to lie to you. I was napping right before this conversation. (laughs) My God, I'm impressed you woke up. You you could have canceled. I I would have totally forgiven you. Oh my God. But I am just so tired. But also I think, you know, after writing that high for a little bit, Mm -hmm. talking Mm -hmm. to people, feeling really energized and jazzed about putting this book out in the world Mm -hmm. and feeling, you know, the pride and, and also having these really intense conversations with people, Mm -hmm. I feel like, Mm -hmm. because I come to every microphone very open about my own personal Mm -hmm. history and my own story, people then come up to me and tell me a lot about their own personal Mm -hmm. traumas. Like I know a lot of the medications that a lot of strangers are on and Mm -hmm. we'll have these very frank conversations. And then the next day I'm just, I am just almost nonverbal. Like I can't Mm -hmm. think I'm just Mm -hmm. going through the motions. And I I felt a little bit of that yesterday. And then today I was like, okay, it's a new day. I'm going to go for a Mm -hmm. run. I have this podcast conversation Mm -hmm. and I was like, I can't, I can't, I just really need a nap. And so (laughs) that's, that's sort of where I am. So you didn't take the run. Did you take the run? No, I didn't. No, I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Good, good. I like to hear that. We are, we are one there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I could nap today too. It must be something in the air. I was talking with Molly Caro May actually on the podcast recently, and we we're talking sort of about like muscling through in writing and this idea of like sitting in the chair and how you have to be present and how you have to like force yourself sometimes. This idea, at least I feel like I was sort of inculcated, like trained in a sense in like early writing classes and mentors of like, get your butt in the chair. And, Mm -hmm. and we were like really kind of resisting that and thinking about ways in which we can be writers when we're not writing. And I think, I don't know if that's also very tied into our caregiving work, but I'm curious if that resonates with you or knowing that you're someone that is really, really open and vulnerable on the page how do you navigate that to, for example, take a nap today or like, what does that look like in terms of nourishing yourself and pulling back? Yeah, I think before I became a mom or maybe just when I was younger, we would hear people tell us, you know, you you have to write every day, writers, real (laughs) writers write every day. I think the older I get, the more I am not hearing my mentor's voices, but it's like capitalism's voice telling you, you must produce and you must, you know, be a machine. And I think after I became a mother, I was like, write every day. I can barely brush my teeth every day. Like, I don't understand how I'm supposed to sit down and and produce writing. Like that's, it's so baffling to my mind. But I remember years and years ago, I heard this it's one of those old wives tales about the poet Marie Ponceau. And she had like many, many children. I don't even know how many, it's like eight or nine or something. 
And people asked her, when do you sit down to write? And I think the legend goes that she was like, well, in those 10 minutes when I'm in the car at the school parking lot waiting for my kids to get out, I will write something in those 10 minutes. And I think before when I heard that story, I was like, yeah, right. Who does that? Like, that's such a load of crap. Like in those 10 minutes, you're going to get writing done. But I think now being a mother and seeing how pressed we are for time and also how desperate we get, I think, after we birth our children and have our identity stretched in so many ways, we become, or at least I became really desperate to kind of claim those spaces that are just mine and those moments that are for just me. And so now I'm like, well, okay, I could probably do that. That makes sense to me. I feel like moms get this superpower ability to just be able to like shut everything out and then have those 10 moments where you're like, this is mine and I will make the most of it because you don't get time otherwise. And I think I'm I'm still trying to figure out how to carve out those spaces for myself and also recognizing that I probably have a lot more privilege than the average working mom in having time like that, you know, especially with having just one child and having my husband who is a breadwinner and just, you know, and then I talked to my single mom friends who are also writers and they're like fighting for their lives to try to get, you know, that extra hour to finish a book. And I think it's a conversation we don't have as openly, maybe sometimes because we feel a sense of guilt or like, or something when we do have time, because we feel like as mothers, we shouldn't have time, mm-hmm. right? That's like the narrative where we like being mm-hmm. martyrs, or that's the narrative that people like to share is like, oh my gosh, this mom who, you know, was waitressing and had multiple jobs and produced the book, it sounds more, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. validated, or I, I don't know, even mm-hmm. know what it is. But it's, it's a struggle for all of us, I think, no matter how much privilege we have, but definitely that struggle looks different and depending on the circumstance and the person and everything. Mm-hmm. Now you wrote this book. How much of this did you write after you had your son? The writing of it spans about nine years. Mm. And there are some poems in here that I wrote right around when my first book was coming out nine years ago or after. And I would say maybe a third of it was written before I got married or around that time. But there was like a three-year period when, right around when I was getting married and afterwards where I was just very depressed. I stopped writing. I stopped reading. I had cut myself off from my writing community. And I just, I didn't know how to get back into my writing. And everything that I wrote sounded like a really bad parody of the things that I'd written in the past, I didn't know who mm-hmm. I was changing into or what my voice was becoming. And it it wasn't until I was pregnant with my son that I started writing a little bit more regularly again. And then after he was born, that, that went to hell. I didn't have any time at all <laughs> until I figured out, okay, I need to find a childcare situation that's mm-hmm. not just me 24 seven. Mm-hmm. And then And then I found this lovely part-time nanny who came in 10 hours a week. And I was like, okay, these are my hours. I am not allowed to do chores or run Mm -hmm. errands during these hours. These are my writing hours. And that was so helpful. And I had her for just a few months. um, And then she left to go to a full-time family. And I remember thinking like, the universe hates me. It's sabotaging (laughs) me. But literally a month after she left, COVID hit. Mm. And everyone was at home with their kids all of a sudden and work looked different for everyone. But there was something about 
the pandemic that for a lot of people, it had a silencing effect. But for me, it felt a little bit freeing where I kind of was like, well, if we're all going to die, then I better write this last thing that I have to say. And I just felt this kind of urgency that I didn't have before that propelled some of the writing. And then it was in 2021 that I signed the contract for Hmm. Bianca. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that is interesting. If you were to pinpoint what it was about, I mean, you say it was just sort of the sense of what is happening in the world, apocalyptic sort of feeling. And I know that given that I've read your work and given, as you've said, how, how much of your own personal stories and traumas that you take onto the page and into this, this world that you've really created, I think in Bianca, you know, as a collection of poems, do you feel that some of that came with you into the collective trauma of the pandemic? Or I I don't know. I just think that's an interesting, very personal experience of the pandemic, like you said, whereas for a lot of people, the opposite happened. But it's it's interesting to hear that that urgency was so compelling to your creative work too. During the height of the pandemic, my husband works in healthcare and he was working at a hospital right right outside of New York City and we were living in Brooklyn. And I didn't leave our two-bedroom apartment, not even into the hallway with my son for almost 10 weeks. And I know we we just stayed inside me and my one and a half year old. We had a balcony and we would go out into the balcony every day and everyone in the apartments around us would be out on their balconies and we got to know our balcony neighbors. (laughs) But we didn't even go into the hallway because my husband worked in healthcare. He also works with the airway. And so we were terrified out of our minds. He would come home and we'd have this whole strategy of, Mm -hmm. you know, getting rid of the poison, like he'd undress himself right at the door. I wouldn't let my one and a half year old go run to hug his dad. And I also didn't know like what that meant for everyone around us, if we were going to be the people spreading this very unknown thing, like nobody knew Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how quickly it could kill you or who could affect, we were just totally scared. And during that time, I think because I had lost my childcare, I also wanted to be more proactive about how to force myself to be accountable to my writing. So I was taking some virtual classes because virtual classes became a thing, right? Everyone started Mm -hmm. to do some of their work and do workshops online. And on the very first day of one of the virtual poetry classes that I signed up for, my father, who I'd been estranged from for like seven, eight years, emailed me out of the blue with late stage lung cancer. And I didn't talk to him for many years. He didn't know I was married or had my son. And this was like June of the pandemic of 2020. So it was like a lot of things happening at once. Mm -hmm. And I think that at a certain point, it's like all of the pressures of everything happening build up inside you. And if you don't write it down or put it somewhere, it's just, you just like, I couldn't even handle it. I had no other Mm. coping mechanisms left. And I came to poetry when I was younger as a coping mechanism. And I think I still do sometimes. And, you know, some poets like to pretend that it's a totally intellectual practice and that there's no therapeutic benefit for them. But for me, it did start out as a therapeutic practice. And I think I still turn to it in that way. And, And maybe in some ways, the pandemic helped me to access that primal relationship I have with poetry where I went back to the original reason why I go to poems. It's because Mm -hmm. I did need a place where I could tell the truth. I did need a place Mm -hmm. where I could process 
like the, the most impossible things. And mm. in doing that, then I figured out how to be a poet again. And I figured out that mm. I have, I haven't lost my relationship to writing. I can start writing again. And so I think it was in a weird way, all of these terrible things happening simultaneously brought me back to that place. I was thinking about those moments of like solitude and to have to process all of that alone as well is a lot. And so I'm really, I having read your work, I'm really grateful that, that you were able to process. And this is a question that I have as well, because I'm not, I don't write in the poetic form. And so I, I'm really, I really admire poets because I wish I've like the heart of a poet, but I can't, I'm <laughs> just so impressed by the way in which, for example, in your work, knowing that journey, I'm curious how you edit then, how do you mm. transition the poem from, or is it, is like, I don't even know how much editorial work you are doing, but you know, as you mentioned, the sort of like that intellectual versus that primal uh, relationship to expression, where does that intersect for you in your process? That's a great question. I think that a lot of times people assume, especially today, that just because you have a traumatic story or a very compelling narrative, that that's going to make a compelling poem. Poetry is so different from memoir or prose in that way, because I feel like without careful attention to craft and especially the relationship that the content has to the form, a poem really can't move the reader just relying on the narrative. I don't think the narrative will ever be enough. And for me, revision is the fun part. Like I, I joke with everybody and I always say, I hate writing, but revising, I love. Like I love paying attention to craft and the line breaks and figuring out ways to like put in the hidden meanings behind the meetings. And, and for me, that takes a really long time. And part of that is because I like to get to a place where my ego has sort of forgotten the first draft mm -hmm. and I've forgotten what I've written about so that I'm not attached to any of it. And and the part of the reason I do this is because my memory is so bad and usually I'll forget what I've written anyways. But when I can return to it super objectively, having forgotten it ever existed, then I can kind of see where the holes are, see what's wrong with it, see what's not working and then attack it, which is fun. <laughs> and for me, I just, some poets are really good at just producing work. And then the next week they're like, I submitted it for publication. And I just, I, it takes me years to mm. become comfortable with a piece enough to feel like I can let strangers not only read it, but critique it and judge it. And like, there's a poem in the book that has a narrative of my husband and my son in it. But the first draft of that poem began before I was even dating my husband. My poems can sometimes take a, such a long journey where I know this is a poem I want to write, but maybe I haven't figured out quite like what I want to say, like the real heart of it. And it isn't until I've lived more life or seen something from another perspective that I realize, oh, okay, this is why I wanted to write this poem. And now it, it has the turn. Now it has mm -hmm. that moment of surprise that mm -hmm. I've been waiting for. And I think for me, unless my poem can give me that like aha moment, that moment of discovery when the poem teaches you something that you didn't set out wanting to write. Unless my poem has that moment, I don't ever feel like it's done. And so 
the revision process is so important to me and, and it takes me forever. And that might be one of the reasons it took me so long to come out with a second book. What I love hearing in that and what kind of gives me hope, and I think it's my own process as well, which I assume is is the process of many creative people or coming whether to the page or something else, is that I love I also love editing and I hear in you like you're searching for like what it was that brought you initially to that tension or that work. Like you were compelled mm-hmm. to say something, but you're like not really sure what it is. You're, you know that it's there. Exactly. And like only the future you can then look at that moment and say, okay, this is what I was trying to say here. And to draw then these pieces from other facets of your experience in life are also, I think, what gives your work such resonance. And yet at the same time, there are a few moments like I had you know, as I was reading, I was writing down little quotes of things that just I was like, oh, I love this. I love this. I love this. But there was one and it's so simple, but I, I'm just going to read it quickly to you if that's okay. I don't even know which poem it's in because I've just like written notes on my phone. I'm sorry that you could hopefully you'll remember. And it was, and this is all I want. Look at my son laughing in the rain. Look how he prods the window with his knife, insisting we cut up the storm, demanding the blue back into view. And it's just that little, like that tiny moment of, and that specific moment, I felt like that motherhood of like, I could just, I knew that even though it's not my son, it's not my world, but I knew that moment of vision that you were sharing with him that was so unique to that relationship. It's just really beautiful. It's like making Mm. me, I just think it's something, it was something about the experience of motherhood and that was contextualized in that moment that I really, really loved. And then also ravenous for marvels. I slit open a chrysalis inside no caterpillar mid morph, only it's ghost in a horror of cells. Like so haunting. And also (laughs) I'm assuming, I can't remember if in this poem, were you growing, were you doing the like the kit with the butterflies that you do with kids or was that something separate? <laughs> it was honestly, that was separate. Actually, that was one of the earliest poems that I wrote oh, interesting. for the book. So that was years before my son existed that hmm. I wrote that one. But now when I read it, I do think of that because he is right now going through a big caterpillar butterfly mm-hmm. phase at his preschool mm-hmm. and just at home, <laughs> like the first butterfly just hatched. Yeah, and I'm like, yeah, oh my God, exactly. he smashed one. Yeah. Oh my God. It's terrifying. I've, <laughs> we did, I think we did that. I think it was pandemic moment mm. of like desperation to do something in the house. And my godmother sent one of those kits and I have experience of my children, you know, messing with them. And then they don't like just how delicate they are. And I just could feel mm-hmm. that, that delicate tension in your work of this could go one way or the like of that balance of survival in mm. moments of such intense, especially given your childhood, like such intense trauma. And I'm also curious how, I mean, as you said, I think the poetry itself has become not just a coping mechanism, but it seems like really like your lifeblood. What do you credit that to? Like, how did you even come to find writing as a child? Oof. I wonder that sometimes. I remember writing stories as early as when I was seven years old. When I was nine years old, I wrote these like quote 
chapter books for my younger sister (laughs) because I was obsessed with the Babysitter's Club books. (laughs) And I only wrote them because I loved the cover art of those books Mm -hmm. and I wanted to make cover art. And I moved a lot growing up and I went to many, many different elementary schools. And this was my favorite elementary school, Mm -hmm. the Virginia Lake. And so the book series was called The Virginia Lake Kids. (laughs) (laughs) But I lost all of them because there were lots of times we would move or abandon our things or we wouldn't be allowed to take our things with us. And um, so I don't have a copy of any of that. But I remember in middle school, one of our assignments for our English class was to find a poet and embody that poet and do like a little book report and then recite one of their poems to the class. And I chose Anne Sexton, not having any idea who she was. And I remember being really blown away. This was like, we had just gotten dial up internet. And so I was like on the internet and whatever, like minimal information about Anne Sexton existed on the web back then I had access to. And I found this poem that was published posthumously that is not even one of her famous poems. And I think it was called Red Roses. And it's like this sing-songy poem, but it was also creepily and like very thinly veiled poem about child abuse. And growing up, I was never allowed to talk about like the abuse at home with my friends or with anybody at church. My dad was a Christian minister, which I haven't really written much about. But I think because of that, there were a lot of reasons why my parents wanted to keep our dysfunction very quiet. And I remember memorizing that poem by Anne Sexton and reciting it to the class and thinking, well, maybe someone will get this Mm. poem because I really got this poem about child abuse. And, you know, it was, I was in seventh grade. I I recited the poem, like nobody reacted. It was just one of those things and, and everybody moved on. But I think after that poetry just had a different kind of meaning to me, but I never thought, oh, I'm going to grow up to be a poet. Mm -hmm. I think because I was still very heavily influenced by my parents or my peers. And, you know, I thought maybe I would go to law school or business school or do all these things, but poetry and writing in general was a thing that I kept coming to and, you know, taking classes for and, Mm ultimately it was just like a few voices here and there. Like every once in a while I'd meet a friend who was, who would believe staunchly in my ability as a writer. And, and after college, I was bartending full-time at one point. And um, one of my regulars was a writer who became one of my really good friends. And he was from New York. He was like, you need to get out of LA and move to New York. Mm -hmm. That's where the real poets are. And um, he was like, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a poet in New York. <laughs> and I use that in one of my lines in one of my poems in this book. And I think it was just those people who are like, you have this, you know, this talent, but also just this connection with words and you also have a story and it's valuable. I think just having people along the way say like, your story has value, your Mm -hmm. truth matters. People do need to hear it. Like you don't need to stay silent. I think like it was the culmination of that energy that sort of like pushed me to New Mm -hmm. York and down this path. And sometimes it's hard for me to figure out, yeah, like what what my life would have been in another way. Or I like to imagine that I exist in lots of different multiverses as many of us do these days. Mm-hmm. And and I always wonder like, you know, who I would have become if I didn't write poems or. Mm. Who would you have become? Who are the multiverse like? Well, in one of the multiverses, I am a poet, but a very different one mm-hmm. where I'm not 
married to this very stable person out in the suburbs with a child. I never thought I wanted to get married with a child. I'm shocked that there's so many poems about that in this book. I never would have projected that. But I think that version of me would have been much more chaotic, maybe wouldn't have had the mental health help I've had Mm -hmm. access to. And in some ways, sometimes I think that the universe like lock me down with a child to -hmm. give me a routine. Because with bipolar, one of the treatments is to have a very regular routine because it can also be a sleep disorder and having that sense of predictability is like is so good in managing the bipolar and i have really experienced that ever since having my child especially cuz he's a kid who loves schedules and routines and time and you know does not want to be late and everything has to happen at a certain time and and so you know sometimes when i fantasize about like the poet i could have been the free spirit who's like you know moving from place to place and kind of how i was in my 20s i i also think well i don't know that i would have been as able to I don't know. I, it's it's hard to say, right? Like mm-hmm. I might've had some benefits, but I think also like, I just think I would still be scream crying at boyfriends and mm-hmm. getting really drunk all of the time. And a mm-hmm. lot of the things that have kind of passed through and, mm-hmm. and found their way out of my life, thankfully, because of some of the choices that I made that I didn't think I was going to make, I guess, mm-hmm. or that the universe mm-hmm. forced me to make in some ways. Mm-hmm. Hmm. You started earlier in the conversation talking about time and motherhood. And so I feel like there's like a pressure, right? When you are responsible for someone else to also be responsible for yourself in a way that you don't have to, I don't know. That's what I'm sort of hearing. I don't know if that resonates with you, but as you were talking, I was just thinking about that and it feels like you feel this new responsibility for yourself. I definitely do. And even in thinking about like the hard things too, right? Mm -hmm. Where I think when I was younger and when I wasn't medicated, like suicidal ideations happened like more Mm -hmm. frequently. And my four and a half year old right now is asking a lot of questions about death. Mm -hmm. And he's at that age where he's very curious, but also very matter of fact, and like really wants to know when we're going to die, whether we can time it. Mm -hmm. So we're both dying at the same time, like all of these four and a half year old questions that are like super alarming to me, mm-hmm. but also it forces me to think about, okay, well, I do want to live to be old and mm-hmm. see who he turns out to be like, and I never wanted to live to be old <laughs> before. Mm-hmm. This is like a recent development because now there's something in the very far future that I want to see. And that. I can't tell yet if that's a gift or a curse, (laughs) but, you know, there are things that come with having children that just change your worldview and change your perspective on life and change the way you think about your own body and your own mind. And, you know, the next logical thought after those thoughts is, well, then I have to take care of myself. I can't be smoking like I used to. I can't, you know, do this and that. And it feels restricting to like the part of my brain that wants to be that free spirit, always had a lot of freedom and didn't really have parents kind of telling me, you know, to go this way or that. But I think I am trying to learn how to not 
view all of this as me being trapped, but that it's me being free to enjoy life in another way. And that's a work in progress. I think that sometimes I still think that being married or being a mom are things that are really suffocating, especially not having had a stable home growing up. And to think that I'm going to like live here for a long time, you know, but I'm trying to figure out that no, these are good things. These are things that most people want, actually. And I'm, you know, crying about something that feels wrong to my brain because my brain doesn't know how to process like the happy things in, in that mm. way. And yeah, so trying to grow and learn. Why don't you start from page 68? My husband is not the first man I've attacked mm -hmm. and then read through to just, I guess a complex emotional cluster is okay. There's a particular moment I wanted to talk about. Okay, great. So from post-traumatic stress disorder with Han, I'll start here in the middle. Mm -hmm. My husband is not the first man I've attacked. Malignant carcinoma, plural effusion, plus three to six months to rework the ending. Jesus, if author, then a slack perfecter, straps a mask to his face, scrubs his punctured hands of us. I am more God than God is these days. Watch me refuse to let my father die in this poem. He is dying, yes, but see how I keep him flickering with a gerund, my father's body deflating, dehydrated stock, a selfie for Christ's sake. Alone as the day, he was released like a scream from the mouth of an American prison, then expelled like an object foreign from the American body to a country neither his nor mine, but home to the ghosts roiling our blood. To be Korean is to house rage, palpable rage. Our people, collectively unwilling to let go, believe we share a turbulence a complex emotional cluster. Thank you. And there's obviously so much more. I want to keep reading. <laughs> we only have so much time. I, I had pointed out that particular moment because I felt like in a lot of your work and just very particularly here, I love how the writing and the words itself were literally, I mean, you're saying he's dying. Yes, but see how I keep him flickering with a gerund. Like it was just so bodily. And it's interesting that when we started this conversation, you said you were having trouble like living in your body, but I felt like in this moment that poetry was so alive in a literal sense. And I really, really was just so moved by that. And also just honestly, just so impressed by, wow, you've taken words and, and a page and transformed it. Felt like it transmutated into something that wasn't even poetry. Like it became a body. And then interestingly, as I'm saying that, I'm thinking about like Christ and the Eucharist. Um, you know, and I know you kind of allude to that there as well. But and then your son. I mean, actually, it resonates with the quote I read earlier about the ghost and the cells, right? And just sort of this sense of who are these people before they. Are someone we know who are they after right and mm -hmm. there's 
there's this ethereal quality and also this earthiness at the same time, like rubbing up against each other. How did you, I'm just also sort of curious in the more on the intellectual side, but also just the literal, like how did you come to those moments in the text? Honestly, I don't even know. (laughs) That's a terrible (laughs) answer, but this poem and that moment was one of those instances where the writing was just tumbling out. Mm -hmm. And I don't have a lot of those. Sometimes it feels like the writing is something I have to pull out Mm -hmm. and it is slow and clunky and I'm trying to put words together to make meaning. But this poem and specifically that moment, I think I was just angry. And this was one of my mid pandemic poems where I was, it was just like coming out of me. And I think I was feeling not just angry, but also snarky and giving myself the permission to put all of that down on the page. I think sometimes we try to edit out our most human tones, Mm -hmm. like the snarky, irreverent parts of ourselves. Mm -hmm. But I think I just didn't give up you know, anymore. And I just Mm -hmm. wanted to like pour all of it out. And I think I'm constantly conscious of the way that content mirrors form in poetry. Mm -hmm. And that's one of my favorite things about poetry. Mm -hmm. And so I think I'm always seeing like, oh, this line break does this to the meaning Mm -hmm. or these sounds, you know, amplify the violence in this way. Mm -hmm. And I think As I was writing this part about my father dying, I also didn't know whether he had already died or whether Mm -hmm. he was still waiting to die Mm -hmm. because we were, our communication became spotty again. And then eventually we stopped talking to each other again. And I think I didn't know how to articulate that, Mm -hmm. that kind of, that tension of not knowing and wondering, but also knowing that he had told me he was going to die in three to six months. And, you know, how did I, how was I supposed to say that on the page without just saying, I don't know, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought, well, what, what I'm doing right now is keeping him alive. And I think these thoughts just started to like pour out of me. And on a technical standpoint, I hate that response because I feel like, well, that's not useful for anybody. (laughs) You know, you can't teach that or share it or reproduce it in some ways. You just kind of have to wait for that. It's what Lorca calls the duende, like the intense spirit kind of overtaking your mind and making you put aside your craft and your knowledge of Mm. the genre and instead just allowing like that almost demonic spirit to kind of overtake you and start to speak for you. And I think it was one of those very rare moments where I kind of allowed that to happen. I mean, I hear voice, obviously, I guess. And but like, how do you teach voice? I think that's a similar I don't know. I'm, I don't teach a lot of writing right now. Are you teaching at all right now? I'm doing some freelance teaching. So through organizations such as Brooklyn Poets. Mm. And I don't, I mean, I think that like, to your point, is there, I don't know, is there a way to teach voice? Is there any like formal? Well, I don't know. So I was talking to the poet Kay Iver about this mm-hmm. not long ago, because they just published their debut collection of poetry. The thing that struck me so much about this book, which I read in one sitting, it's called Short Film Starring My Beloved's Red Bronco. And it's about a former lover from high school who was a trans boy who never got to 
identify himself that way and then eventually died by suicide. And it's this like very intense, very beautiful book. But the thing that struck me most was Kay Ivers' voice. Because I was like, oh, this is a unique voice. I could, I feel like after reading that book, I could identify a Kay Ivor poem anywhere. And I was talking to them about it and asking like, how did you do that? And they said that one of their favorite things to teach is voice. And I was like, how? Mm-hmm. And um, they have some therapeutic exercises that I'm not, I wish I could conjure it, but I'm not going to conjure it now. Mm-hmm. I can't think of it now, but it's like these exercises, these generative writing prompts that they have their students do that are basically kind of getting into your like psyche of, you know, what is your ultimate desire? What do you want? Like these non-poemy prompts that are more about the mind and more about your core and your core beliefs, your core self, like what you fear, what you want. And I wish I could figure out what that, what that prompt was. I guess we're all just going to have to go stalk Kate Iver and, (laughs) and, and read more of their work or their teaching. But I thought that was a really interesting approach that sometimes teachers focus so much on the craft, Mm -hmm. but their approach was to get the class to access their true reason why Mm -hmm. they come to poetry, why they write poetry. And when you can get someone to go into that deeper sense of self and that deeper place and their voice like inevitably comes out. And that's the Mm -hmm. idea is that then they start to write, not like the people or poets they're trying to emulate, but now they're Mm -hmm. writing from their instinctual needs, from their Mm -hmm. animal self almost. I think a lot of times teaching that is to kind of unteach what everybody comes to the table with to say mm-hmm. like put put out the you know poet voices in your head you don't have to sound smart or sound like these people just sound like yourself when you're hungry and when you're devastated and you know when you're in love like what do you sound like and get that mm-hmm. on the page hmm. yeah it's interesting because i think i could feel your voice in your work very clearly and Again, that sort of resonates with what you're saying there without having you having done that exercise deliberately. I think clearly you were doing that through the process of the writing of this book because you were, you know, needing to go to a place that was therapeutic for you. And so then it became like you were delving deeper to unearth that voice. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense, but that was... It does, (laughs) definitely. Okay. I know we're getting tight on time but I let me go to that poem that I we had talked about before we started do you mind reading that I have no idea why <laughs> I made a note is, ah. is it because you know the song about the frogs the f- speckled frogs <laughs> I do know the song you know about the song? speckled frogs I do little speckled, little speckled frogs little sat on a speckled log yeah. eating <laughs> some most delicious bugs yum yum is that why I've asked that's, you? That's, I don't know. But that's the song that I'm talking about. In the Where, how did you know the song? My sister-in-law, who is like the ultimate mother, she for many years was a stay-at-home mom. Her daughters are all in college or out of mm. college now. She taught it to my baby when he was a baby. And he mm. loved it because he loves numbers and counting like to this day. And so I had to sing the song nonstop for <laughs> months and months and months. And I was going crazy. And during that time, it was also, this was also one of those like looking back on the pandemic type poems, mm. but yeah, the frogs then sort of started to leap and make their connections to one of my favorite 
Old Testament stories, Mm -hmm. which is when Moses is trying to free his people and there are the 10 plagues. And my favorite moment is when there's the plague of frogs and Pharaoh's asking Moses, like, please, please, you know, get rid of the frogs. And when Moses is like, okay, I will, when do you want me to get rid of them? And Pharaoh says tomorrow, instead of like, right this instant. And it's, Mm. and I remember hearing this sermon like many, many years ago Mm. about how it speaks to how we just get so attached to the things that hurt us and attached Mm. to the things that are not good for us. And even when we don't want them in our lives anymore, it's so hard to let them go. Mm. And so hard to say, okay, I do want this out of my life now. And we say, we often say, well, okay, how about tomorrow? Mm. I think it's just such a human Mm. moment. And so I guess I was thinking about like all of those things simultaneously. Mm. And um, also thinking about not being on medication right mm. before the pandemic. I, you know, mm-hmm. in, in late 2019, I thought to myself, oh, I'm doing so great. I don't need to be on my bipolar meds anymore. So I went off of them like December of 2019 <laughs> and, then, and then COVID hit and I was like a mm. mess, but mm. yeah. <laughs> Would you read it for us? Yes. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Thank you. Off the medication, New Year's Eve, 2019. I am raving in this rain, this cloak of coarse diamonds, each drop a door to the years that knocked me dead. I am rich meat in this rain, insufferable, crushed ice in my fists, I am parched. I beg Moses to call off the plague of frogs, and when Moses asks when, I am Pharaoh saying, tomorrow, God, I love the frogs, God, make the plague stop. My baby motions for a song about speckled frogs, and when I count the creatures down to zero, I don't know how to swim again, 20-something at the dawn of this decade, on a raft, slapping through the Nile where I held on through the bad place, then shot out into a rapid called the other place. I am the names they use to bind me. Firecracker, sore for sight eyes, worthless whore. Every word cogent in the storm, even the ones that wish me dead. I am the biblical woman who, bleeding, cleaves the crowd to finger a fringe as a way of asking for help. I have trouble asking for help. Everyone has trouble asking what kind of bloody help, and I can't stop screaming the song that makes the frogs bolt into a pool and croak. I've taught my baby to sign for all done and more. God, I am done. God, I want more. Thank you. Oh, so much better to hear it from you. (laughs) (laughs) And also that context is actually, I didn't need it, but it gives a new layer and a level, sort of a new, a new tenor to the poem didn't have on my first read. So thank you. Yeah. The speckled frogs. Now I'm going to have that in my head for a while. Oh, I know. Now we're doomed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. Well, I feel like, I feel like I want to leave this podcast with your words in that way. So I might just want to stop asking questions. I don't want to ask any more questions unless you have anything additional that you want to share. No, this is great. Yeah. Thank Thank you you so much for your questions and your like just thoughtful attention to the book and just to this conversation. I really appreciate it. 
I appreciate you sharing. And also I'm really glad we were able to connect. And hopefully if you end up out West at all, or have any book events out here, do you have anything planned? No, I was actually just in San Francisco for one book event in April. Well, next time that would be really great. But actually, you know what, before we go, I would love to hear what you're, if you're working at all on anything now, what you're working on or what that looks like, like, where are you in this process of doing the kind of work you're doing in the home and with your son and, and your writing life? Yeah, I have no idea. (laughs) I think (laughs) I feel this sense that I'm going to need to find my voice all over again and figure out what kind of writer I am again. Right now, I've been moving toward prose a little bit and writing more essays. And that's a little bit scary, I think, because of just, I think the kind of, I feel like it's harder to hide in essays, maybe, or there are different expectations. And so I'm trying to figure out, like, am I a prose writer? I have another Mm -hmm. essay coming out soon in Romper Mm -hmm. and trying to tackle some of these same topics about motherhood and mental health. But I don't know if I love writing prose the way that I love writing poetry. It feels more like work to me. And so I'm trying to figure out my relationship to that and whether it's just something I'm doing temporarily or if it'll turn into a project, I have no idea. Mm, mm. Well, it's exciting to hear, but keep us posted. I would love to read more of your work in any format. So we can definitely share if that essay comes out, let's make sure that we share it with the show notes on this piece. And, and obviously connect, we'll, we'll have links to your work and to your books. And we really appreciate that you can sit with us today. And that you got Thanks. out of bed. Yay. Yes, you I know. You feel, you feel I heard my alarm. I, I do. Feel, I feel like okay. a person again. So okay, that's good. nice. Good. Yeah. Good. Thank okay. you. You can go back to sleep now or pick up your son. <laughs> <laughs> if you have to pick up your son from school or whatever. I actually have this um, parent-teacher conference later. So. Oh, okay. Get into that mode and that yeah, voice right. and that, that person. Okay. Now I'm right. parent-teacher person. Well, thank you so much. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop this, but thanks to Dina. host Caitlin Salamini and this is the postpartum production podcast. If you like what you've heard today, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating, which will help us reach more listeners like you. For regular updates, visit our website www.postpartumproduction.com. Follow us on Instagram at postpartum production podcast and subscribe to our Substack newsletter. Thank you for listening today and being a valuable part of this community of caregivers and artists who are redefining the work that we do and pushing forward with a new system in which art and caregiving are increasingly valued and supported.